to the MEC English Service Podcast. For more resources or information about our church, Mideast Evangelical Church, visit mec.church. So 1 Peter 1, 13-21 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, to be ho- so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each, of each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable th- things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. All right, so last week, let me make sure, yeah, um, last week we uh, we got past the intro and got into this sort of Baroque or Baruch um, that, that Peter is giving, um, and in this blessing that he gives, um, he talks about how great God is, how great he is that he's worked out this whole plan of salvation, that the whole past, present, and future are building up to this moment, and then here, he's like, okay, so now... Now that we've said all this stuff about God, where all history is going, how it's all led up to this time, and what we have to look forward in the future, now, um, he says, in the NIV, it's a little bit boring. He says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. Um, Which, like, that's not that boring, but if you compare it to the King James Version, the King James Version actually does a very, um, it's very literal and so it takes some of these like Greek idioms and then doesn't translate it at all for you. It just like literally says this, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end. Um, how many of you talk about your loins on the regular? Yeah. Um, do you know what region the loins are? Uh, show us. Oh my gosh. Um, so the loins, um, the loins naturally are typically below your belly button and above your knees. There's a, there's a little zone in there. And typically it has to do with fertility and baby making. Um, those are the connotations of the loins. So it's kind of weird that he starts the next chunk with gird up your loins. Not even just gird up your loins, but gird up the loins of your mind. This is how the next text starts. But you got to think, okay, it'd be kind of silly for him to be like girding means like put on, put clothes onto. Um, is it like, is he saying are, your brain is supposed to wear underwear? Like, is he like, guys, some of you are walking around with ununderweared brains and you need to put some underwear on your brains because it's disgusting, right? Is he saying that? Anybody think that he's saying that? Because why would we need underwear on our, on our minds, on our brains? Um, it's like a ghost, huh? It keeps, like, squeaking. Um, so, oh, yeah, I forgot. So there's something backstage. I need to illustrate what this actually means. Sorry. All right, so what I have here is I have a belt 
And I have a curtain that we stopped using. Um, I don't know why. These are better than the ones I think we have. So whatever. Oh, these are the ones we put in the closet. Um, so this is a curtain. And here's what it means to gird up your loins. Now, if I was an ancient person, pants are not an option. Because pants are a newfangled invention, um, probably traced back to the Vikings. What did people wear before pants? Skirts, kind of. Yeah, like they would just have a garment that wraps around your body. So let me wrap this garment around my body. Now this would fall down, right? Am I right? So I need a belt, just saying. Okay, so... This is just girding myself. Like, I'm not necessarily girding my, but my loins are girded in a way. Um, but I've just put on, like, ancient dress clothes, right? Like, this is what I would wear. Um, now, what if I got in a fight and I need to be, like, running around and throwing, like, high kicks and back kicks and roundhouses? What am I going to do? Yeah, yes, you cut them shorter. What if I'm like, but, dude, this is my only four-cornered garment, I'm going to gird my loins. I'm going to tuck this. I'm going to tuck this up into my belt. Right? And naturally, I'd be wearing a loincloth um, of some sort. And so now I'm ready to fight. Right? Because my loins have been girded. You know what I'm saying? What? Is it? Oh, that makes a lot of sense for support. Okay. <laughs> but either way, I now have more freedom of motion because my loins have been girded. The stuff is no longer around my feet. So what is Peter saying here? Right? He's not, again, he's not saying put underwear on your brain. He's not saying um, that you need to wear a certain type of clothing. But he's saying, okay, your minds, sometimes they can't move around very well. Sometimes your minds aren't ready for action. Sometimes your minds aren't ready to throw a front kick. And you need to gird up your loins of your mind so that your mind has free motion, so that your mind can do what your mind needs to do. Does that make sense? You probably won't take me seriously if I continue to wear this, so... So we need to gird up the, the loins of our mind for what, though, right? What do, we, what do we need to actually gird the loins of our mind? What do we need to, like, get ready for? What is the action that we need to dive into? I mean, notice that it's paired up with gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. And then what comes after both, NIV and KJV, what comes after this? For hope. This is why I had you guys discuss, like, what is it that gives you hope? Now, it kind of seems weird, because I feel like normally in Christian culture, um, the default thing that we talk about, like, being mentally ready for is, like, we're apologetics, right? Um, We need to be ready to, like, accurately defend our faith and give a clear representation of what is true, et cetera, et cetera. But no, Peter is like, your minds need to be sharp. They need to be ready for battle. And you know what they need to be ready to battle for? Hope. Your minds need to be ready for hope. And later, like that famous verse that apologeticians, apologists use, is like, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. 
right? It's hope that we need to be ready for, that we need to have our minds ready for action, be alert, be sober, have the loins of our mind girded up. And what you'll notice is in this passage, he says a lot of things in a long run on sentence again. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. And then he closes this little thought with, through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Now note that it starts with, we hope on this future grace that will be brought to us, but we hope in it because of what has been done in the past, because of what Christ did on the cross. That hope, hope is the bookend on each side of this passage. And I think that in Christianity, usually the default, like the default, like thing that is most important. What have, what is the most important virtue? Love, Jesus in our hearts. All of these things, right? Um, but love has trouble taking root if there is no hope. Love has trouble taking root if there is no hope. Now, here's the reason I say that that hope cannot be digested, or love cannot be digested without hope. Because if you're in despair, if you're in a really bad situation, and someone comes to you and says, oh my gosh, I, but I love you so much. But if there's no hope that tomorrow can be different, right? If there's no hope that things can actually change, then we're going to have, we're going to have issue like that love isn't going to do anything for us, right? Because we need to believe that something can actually get better, right? That's moderately distracting. Um, so I think if, you know, if you've like looked at the world, um, if you watch the news enough, you would realize why it takes sober minds, why it takes your mind to be the loins of your mind to be girded, why it takes readiness, why it takes intentionality for us to hope, right? Um, Like a weekend ago, um, there was like back-to-back shootings in our country. This week was the, um, like my in-service time for working as a teacher and the amount of time that we had to spend dedicated to like what happens if a student comes in and wants to shoot everybody? Um, what happens if someone else wants to? What are our procedures? Like we literally spent four hours of staff preparation time, like not on teaching um, people how to become like better thinkers and learners, like, but we spent this time trying to figure out, okay, how do we make sure that everyone can stay alive in, in the event that someone comes in here and shoots everybody, tries to shoot everyone. Like, and I, we see it so often now that it's kind of just like, yeah, that's part of the world that we live in. Part of the world that we live in is if you're in a crowded place, like someone might come and want to kill a lot of people, right? Even international travel, right? There's the grown-up version of this um, in like terrorism or the political version of this. Like we live in a world where if we're not trying to stay mentally sharp, it's really easy to despair, right? The default, if we listen to the news enough, if we, like, don't pay attention, it's easy to say, I despair. Now, some of us can be melodramatic and be like, I'm despairing all the time, the world is so terrible, but others of us, we despair in other ways, right? We despair by saying, like, oh, well, it's not going to change anyway. I'll just do what I want. Oh, well, this is how it's going to be, so might as well, right? There's... There's more subtle forms of despair, which I see that a lot more in the generations coming up because we've normalized behaviors so that we're just like, oh, well, like, no hope. 
we wouldn't say no hope, but we're like, we say, we say um, trickier ways of saying there's no hope. Like, it is what it is. That's just how it is. That's the world we live in, right? We throw these words around, but it's code for there is no hope. And Peter says, gird up your loins, tie up your tunic of your mind and be alert be sober because if we understand what Jesus did and we if, under, if we understand what Jesus will do, then we cannot lose hope. No matter how much that's going to be the default, no matter how much that's going to be the easy thing to do, we cannot lose hope. Be aware, be sober, be alert. Don't let anyone lead you into despair, right? Now, um, if we hope it's going to affect our behavior. And that whole middle chunk, he, he jumps into like parental behavior. You'll notice that in, in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, don't conform. And we'll talk about what you don't conform to. In 17, since you call on a father who judges impartially. In 15 and 16, be holy because I'm holy, um, which would call the ancient mind to think, oh yeah, Leviticus, that was said there. But then also one of the highest virtues of a child is to imitate their parents. Right, this whole like do as I say, not as I do thing um, wasn't like, that wasn't how you parented, right? It was, no, like the, the parents are flattered. The, the, it's credit to the parents if the kids imitate them. And so if we have hope in Jesus, then we're gonna wanna be like our heavenly father. We're gonna wanna imitate the father. We use this fatherly language. In other words, we know that dad's gonna save us. And so, even if all of this stuff around us looks like it's trash, even though everything around us looks like it's totally going to crumble and there's no way that we can be saved, there's no hope for the future, we know that dad is going to swoop in and save us. So the thing that we need to focus on is making sure that we're good with dad, that we know who he is and that we are connected to dad because we know he's going to swoop in and save us. Now, I know that like, um, growing up in a world where we are raised by human beings, like even like the word dad can be a loaded word for us. We're like, yeah, like dad's going to come around, right? And some of you are like, no, this totally resonates with my experience. Yes, dad does swoop in and save us. But what we, what we get in this text is Peter points to how dad saved us through self-sacrifice, through Jesus. And so we know that dad will save us again through Jesus, so we want to make sure that we're paying attention and we're hoping because we know that there is actually hope, that things can get better, that it isn't just the way it is, but rather that Father will save us. And we look forward to a grace, even as we talked about before, even if it is beyond death, right? Because sometimes the salvation doesn't come on this side of death, right? Sometimes Someone does get shot. Sometimes someone does lay down their life. But we know that we can have hope even in the face of death because we know that dad will save us. Does that make sense? So if that's the case, um, uh, if we want to be like dad and we want to be holy, like we've probably heard the the textbook definition for holy means to be set apart, um, which like that's, that's fine. But set apart, How? Different how. We are other how, right? Like when we talk about the divine, when we talk about God, I know that like a lot of times we use metaphors and vocabulary that like says like he's the father, he has a strong right arm. Like there's all these things that we can tangibly grasp, but God is so much other, 
right? When we're talking about a being that existed before time and space, we're talking about a very other type of being, a very different type of being. And so if we're talking about how we are supposed to be holy as God is holy, we need to think about, okay, what is the difference? What is the differentness, the otherness, the not fitting inness? that God has, that he is calling us to as well. Because he's probably not calling us to timelessness or omnipotence or omniscience. But he is calling us, rather, to goodness. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus drops this line after giving all of the, you have heard it said, but I say, and at the end he's like, so be perfect as your father is perfect. Or be whole, be complete as your father is whole or complete. And this coming after his explanation of what holy kingdom living looks like. So if we are going to imitate our father who is holy, then we are going to be different in the ways that he's holy and different from a couple of things. One of the things that we're going to be different from is we're going to be different from our original individual default way of deciding and doing things. There's a default mode that we as humans have. And in that default mode, when our brains are turned off, when, our, the, when the loins of our mind are not girded, when we are not sober, there are some automatic behaviors that we slip into. And when he calls us into holiness, when he says, be holy as your father is holy, he's like, be different from the way that naturally humans tend to behave. Now, not every human's behavior is exactly the same, but I think all of us can attest to this reality that inside of us, there are drives, appetites, urges that are there whether we're trying to cause them or not. Right now, some of them are a little bit more animalistic. Like any animal has a lot of these same drives, which is for food and sex and safety, right? And I think a lot of us, we can attest to the fact that inside of us, there are these drives that if we don't check them, that if we aren't aware of them, if we are not alert and sober and tuned into those things that are going on inside of us, they can lead us to very destructive paths. Sometimes our drive for safety and security causes us to avoid and stay out of like really meaningful good experiences in life. Sometimes a drive for sexuality or romantic passion drives us to do really dumb things trying to pursue it. Sometimes even like our relationship with food, um, if we don't turn our brains on, we can get ourselves into some really unhealthy relationships with food. But even like beyond the animalistic drives, the defaults, the automatic things that are inside of us, some of them are a little bit more sophisticated. Some of them are more calculated. Things like, like power. A lot of us inside, there's like a deep ache to control. To control others, to control the environment, to control the conversation, to control the community. There's things inside of us that say, I want to control and have power over. Right? For others, it's um, wanting to win. Winning, right? Like we'll sacrifice everything to come out on top because there's this like deep ache inside of us that says we need to win. I need to win. I need to be the one on top. So if I need to tear other people down to make sure that I'm on top, I will do this. And if we look at our world, we have a world that has, doesn't check a lot of these animalistic drives and behaviors. Right? We have a world that doesn't say, I'm going to be different from that. 
Now, um, we see this, like, this is where he starts with, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. He's like, before I called you and made you my, uh, before God called you and made you his kids, that was your default way of doing things. But if you are called by him, you're going to allow the process of sanctification to start changing all of that. So that is not going to be your default mode of operation anymore. Now, are all of them going to be this like animalistic? All of, all of them going to be individualistic? If we look further in the passage, he says, it's not just like that, that lust that was in you. By the way, um, where it says the, the evil desires, um, good old King James, he like gets closer to the um, actual um, word that's in there and says, the original King James actually uses the word that there are lusts. Now, um, in addition to this, we also have a communal element. In verse 18, it says, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. We are going to be different, not only from our own internal drives, but we will be different from the way that our tribe operates as well. Now, we don't live in like a tribal system technically speaking. But if you were raised in a Republican household, there are ways that the Republican tribe operates. If you were raised in a Democratic household, there are ways that the Democrat tribe works. If you were raised in a rich household, there are ways that rich tribes work. There are ways that poor tribes work. There are ways that tribes that are drawn along socioeconomic, along racial lines, there are ways that we are raised in that the tribe says this is the default way of doing things. You don't question why we do things these ways. But he says, no, no, no. When you were taken by Christ, when you were saved by Jesus, when you became a kid, a child of the Father, you're in a new family with new values. And your values align to the Father, no longer to the tribes. Because sometimes the tribes are wrong. Right? Sometimes the default way of your system that you were raised in are wrong. And the way that you check them is you measure them against Jesus. You say, does this align with the holiness of my father? And so if that's the case, he says, here's what you do instead. You need to be fearful and obedient. It says to fear the Lord as you live out your time here as, as resident aliens and in obedience or submission um, to the things that the Father says. Now, um, these are kind of bad words in the modern area, era, right? If you talk about obedience, like it's kind of, it's almost like a, like a, like a slur, like a, a thing that you say, if you're being obedient, it's like, it automatically comes with the, I guess, the connotation of like, oh, like I'm cowering, um, I'm not being who I am, I'm just being obedient. Or even like the idea of fearing God. Like if we fear God, sometimes it kind of just seems like, wait, shouldn't we, like, not have to fear God. But the thing is, we are going to obey and be fearful of something. If we are obey and are fearful of our own desires, well, then we fear our desires being unmet. We are obedient to our drives and our lusts. We submit to the urges inside of us. Or if it's about our tribe, we, um, we're afraid of being rejected by family, culture, political party, class, friend group. Right? We are obedient to this group of people, even if we don't agree with them. And we submit just to, okay, this is the way I have to think because I want to be part of this group. So the thing is, we are going to fear, like respect, put above ourselves something or someone. And we're going to be obedient to something or someone. And Jesus says, or not Jesus, I guess Peter, Jesus would probably say this, that we need to fear and be obedient to the Father. 
fear and be obedient to Christ, that we need need to be different for that sake. And here's what's cool is verse 17 through 19. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So what's cool is fear and be obedient to God. By the way, here's what God does is he lays himself down for you. The only one in the universe that we should fear, the only one in the universe that we should be afraid of, is the only one in the universe who's willing to give it all. To say, I lay down all of it for you. I lay, I lay down my divinity to come walk among you. I lay down my own life to die for you. So yes, like we, we need to fear God, who is the only being in the universe that we don't need to fear. It's this paradox where we fear the creator of the universe who, because he loves us, was willing to do everything for us, give up everything, to die and sacrifice for us. So fear, but there's no need to fear. But what it does is it says that we don't need to fear those other things anymore. We don't need to be obedient to those other things anymore. And this is why I think Peter says, if you live this way, you will be like resident aliens. This is how the word translates. Some translations say sojourners or the time of your wandering or foreigners, but it says um, you are resident aliens because check it out. If you don't fear, if you fear God above anyone else, any system, any group of people, any individual, then you're going to look weird. If you don't give into your selfish urges and desires, you're going to look weird. If you don't blindly follow what other people tell you you need to do, you're going to look weird. And last, if you hope, even when there's school shootings, if you hope, even when your friends seem like they're never going to change, if you hope, even when your family still seems like it's broken and falling apart, if you hope in the face of all of these things, you're going to look super weird. And this is what Peter means when he says, you'll be resident aliens. You'll be here rightfully, but you won't look like someone who's from here. You're going to be different. So let's close in prayer. So God, we ask for the boldness, for the courage, for the strength to be resident aliens, fearful fearful of no one but you, submissive to you first, obedient to the things that you desire for us so that we can be a unique, holy people just as you are holy. God, I pray that you would not only give us the strength and courage, but give us hope for that courage and strength to take root and manifest itself in a life of love. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.